Adam Bloom. Hello. You're having a baby. Uh, yes, uh, not as we speak. Um, yeah, I'm having a baby in January. The, your first one, right? My first one. Very exciting. Most exciting. Th- it's every Christmas anticipated, all rolled into one. And around yeah. Christmas time as well. Yeah. So yeah it's, you know what? My birthday is the 8th December. My wife's is the 12th. Um, God, this is credit card fraud asking to have, isn't it? And my <laughs> PIN number <laughs> is my date of birth in, in numbers. Um, God, imagine it was. Uh, my um, wife's is the 12th. And obviously it's Christmas and New Year that month. And wedding anniversary is the 13th. Wow. So if my baby's born two weeks premature, I think I'll push her back in. <laughs> and it is a girl, by the way. I already, okay. I already know I've cheated. Right. Yeah, I've checked. Congratulations. Do you like kids, generally? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I just like sex. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com. And this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. I love kids. This was very much planned. And, um, yeah, I'm obsessed with children. I've gone my whole... I'm 38. I've gone my whole adult life deciding I'm never going to be a dad because of the fear of the responsibility. And then we sat there and discussed it. And at the end of it, I said, yeah, get your kit off. That's so crude. Sorry. Um, you said- off. She was naked anyway. It was an enticement. <laughs> she sat there naked at a board meeting. Hmm, we should have a baby now. Anyway. You've done kids' TV, haven't you? Yes, I have done two series of stitch-up which was, it was actually started on like Choice, then went to BBC Terrestrial, and then it went to Primetime. So it was a really popular kids' programme. I don't know if it still exists anymore. What was the premise of the show? It was basically a Beatles about type thing for children by children. And I was the adult hidden camera person. It was great fun. It actually, if I was ambitious enough to put a show reel together, it would be on it. There were things I would go to a school and I'd do a talk to maybe 20 classes. I'd dress in different outfits, firemen, policemen, ambulancemen, and I'd just tell lies to children. Some of them were written by the BBC, some of them were written by me, and a lot of them were improvised because kids would ask questions. This was 2001, so there was one class. I told them that there was a speed limit for walking and it was five miles an hour. And they said, how do you know you're going over? And I said, the government will issue speedometer watches. And you can see the kids go, oh, that's okay then, okay. And then one kid went, what if you're playing football? Which is a great question. And I'd say, I'm sorry, the same rule applies. And then you can see, oh, these kids and their whole funds, their whole lives being ruined. And then one of them went, what if you're in goal? I went, same rule applies. And he went, oh, I played goalie for the Islington under 11s. <laughs> and you can see, I was heartbreaking. But it was, you know, it was funny knowing that they were going to be told it was all a joke in the end. And then, um, I said, but well, the goalpost will be made smaller. So it was just lovely. And then we go, oh, okay, that's it. Okay, I can see. It. You can see them imagining walking around a football pitch. But it's such a lovely question. What if you're playing football? And um, there were all these ridiculous premises, like Central London will have a one in one out policy. And they'd ask questions like, what if you're with a baby? And they said, well, there will be child minors on the other side to look after your kid. But you could see them, and go, oh, that's okay. And they had this kind of, you know, they were being very moral and very, yes, okay, I, I accept that. I accept a child mind on the other end. But it was just lovely watching it. What a great question, though. What have you got a baby? You know, you're with your baby and one person goes out of London and you or your baby has to go in and leave the other one behind. It's a brilliant question. And how did they react when you revealed it? They loved it. There was a moment, the younger ones, it was great. The eight-year-olds believed absolutely everything you said. And then the 10 to 11 year olds were a bit cynical. And of course, I had a responsibility to tell them things weren't true because some things could be dangerous if they believed them. So I go, in actual fact, there's a camera there, there's a camera there, I'm an actor, it's all a lie, I'm not a policeman, and, and this is a kids' program called Stitch Up, and it's all a lie. And you can see all their little brains programming and working it all out, processing everything. It's amazing, their little eyes, and their old huge eyes. And then one would go, Does this mean we're going to be on TV? And I go, Yes. Yeah. So they go, Yeah! 
in the whole class, jumped, jumped. People were doing dances, you know, like these midnight of the Apollo programs you get at like midnight from New York, and people just get up in the front row and dance because they can't contain themselves. It was like that. It was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. But they were really fun kids. It was. I did about twenty classes in one afternoon. It was one of the best days of my life. That's wicked. Yeah, yeah. You should get that up online. We should try and get it on YouTube. I got recognised in the street from like eight-year-olds. It's quite weird. <laughs> down the street. Yeah. What would happen? Hey, you got that bloke off Stitch Up? You see adults going, what Stitch Up? You know, it was, it was strange. But it's, you know, it's nice to, you know, I do, you know, I've got Radio 4. I used to do Radio 4 and have people in their 70s coming to see me at gigs. And then obviously eight-year-olds wouldn't come and see me. It's, it's nice to know that three generations have at least appreciated what I've done on some level the radio show that you did yes on radio four which the problem with adam bloom yes the first series was 15 minute sort of segments yes. that can you explain the concept it was six 15 minute episodes for the first two series and the third was half hours and it was about my struggle with everyday problems such as gossip or lending things or bad service in restaurants it was just a, an angsty man complaining but it, when i wrote it i thought it was going to look like a bitter person being quite annoyed but in actual fact it always had a uplifting moral ending which was showing you how it could be so it wasn't going the world's crap it's basically going here's how the world could be better which is you know it's a fine line between being you know you get friends who are kind of angry people but often inside them they're just trying to make it all make sense and you can turn the other way and you can become angry and just slag everything off you know criticizing something only is a negative thing but saying how it could be better turns it all around doesn't it and so did you enjoy doing the radio do you like it as a medium is it i love i love it and i think that budget never in, interferes with radio i did a comedy lab channel 4 broadcast pilot 10 years ago and they couldn't afford for four chinese neighbors to come around my house and stand over me while i ate my dinner which is obviously funny in context right but but the point was, you know there wasn't the budget for i, I can have dinosaurs and i can have anything i want and still had Chinese people, actually. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Chinese people coming over to my house. No, but, but you know, there's no budget restraint. And, you know, you get an impression. I had a guy called Stefano Paolini, who's a brilliant impressionist, and he could do any voice I wanted. So it was just wonderful. You know, you could have any sound effect you wanted, any voice. It's only your ability and your imagination that restricts you. You mentioned the fans coming to the gigs. Old people, yeah. Yeah, Milton, how did they... Well, it's quite strange. Milton Jones is a better example of this because he's done, like, seven or eight Radio 4 series, and he says he'll be doing a beery comedy club in a rough part of the country, and there'll be a room full of young people back then smoking and, and drinking heavily. And then an old couple with their coats still on at the back of the room who'd clearly been Radio 4 fans. It's beautiful, isn't it? They'll sit through all the swearing and the controversy of the other acts to then sit through Milton's completely squeaky clean, inoffensive act. But, yeah. But, I mean, yours, how did they go down with you? Because your stand-up is, you're not kind of, like, acerbic and overly sweary no, and no, mean. No, no, and... I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm edgy in the eyes of somebody who's incredibly conservative, though. I did a corporate last night, and I'm looking at the kind of rough kind of material I want to do, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is all clean. I think, well, actually... If you scrutinise it, it's not. It's actually edgy bits here and there. But it's, yeah, on a comedy club, Bill, I'm certainly, you could bring your mum along to my show. Right. But that's because I shag mums. How do you find doing the corporate things? Um, I used to hate them and now I'm starting to really like them. But occasionally you have a tough one. The fundamental difference is when you go to a comedy club, you're paying money to be in the presence of a comedian. You know, you're choosing to pay money to hear people speak. But when a comedian's booked for your corporate, he's coming into your company. It's different between them going to you and you going to them. And suddenly you're a bit more of a court jester. Do you tailor stuff towards, do you find out what the company is? I and... write stuff specifically because, I mean, you know, they do pay far more than clubs. You do clubs for love of comedy and you do corporates for love of money, really. You know, you need to do both. You can't be too pure, otherwise you'll be, you know, struggling to make a living with a baby to feed but I did one last night and I it was a mobile phone awards what mobile 
magazine. So I wrote about six or seven jokes specifically, two afternoons just flicking through the magazine and thinking about it. I wrote stuff specifically on, on them. It's great because your material, you're doing a gag about just something generic and they kind of laugh. But then when you mention their product and you and you hammer a boss of a company or you you know you pick on a design of a thing that's copying something else and you really say something funny about that it's a hundred times funnier to them because it's it's their world isn't it so it makes it i mean i wish i had the either the commitment or the skill or both to write an entire set on that company i guess it's the same as doing a gig in birmingham and talking about birmingham no no sure but in a comedy club they would happily sit through you talking about anything for the entire time because they're in a comedy club, it's nicer and it's more skilled for you to talk about Birmingham for a minute at the beginning. Do you remember the horrible nail bombers? And um, someone shouted out, you're in Manchester now, mate. And I thought, God, that's a bit of an insular attitude. You know, Manchester's got, hello, Manchester, I love you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that kind of, that Manchester, it's a big city thing, isn't it? London's number one and Manchester doesn't like that. That's how I perceive it. And I know people in Manchester listen to this. But I just remember thinking, I mean, we're only talking about one man here who represented an entire city's opinion. But no, it's one man's opinion. But I remember thinking, all right, mate, that people were dying here because of some bigot, and you don't think it's relevant to Manchester. But anyway, so I threw a nail at him. Um, you mentioned several, one at a time. You mentioned uh, telly stuff earlier. I wanted to ask about some other telly stuff. Most recently, you did Mock the Week. Yes. Tell end last year. Yes. I've had a lot of comedians on here who've been on Mock the Week. Okay. Mixed responses. Um, I would imagine you've had predominantly the one response, though. Well, I mean, we've had like Andy Parsons and, oh, he, uh, and a... Stuart Francis and people who okay. are kind of regulars who are big fans, and right. then other people who've gone, yeah, <laughs> let's move on. I mean, it is, it's this kind of old boys okay. who can shout the loudest. There was a bit when you were on that was fantastic, where they're doing the bit where you take it in turns to jump down to the mic, where you basically <laughs> kind of scramble down to the yeah, microphone yeah, yeah. and then got a big cheer when you I got, got a it. cheer for getting there, yeah. And then Jeannie Esheray fought me to get the joke in because she'd had trouble too getting a word in and it was a fun little fight but yeah the cheer from the audience was that spoke volumes to people at home I think when realised that obviously they don't see the full unedited version that there was a lot of a struggle to speak and my wife pointed out that the regulars all took one step further than they're supposed to stand I was told specifically where to stand and they're standing closer to the microphone and um, basically, I, Stuart Francis did very well on that show, but I saw one moment, he made a witty comment, the audience laughed, went to applaud, someone spoke over his applause to say the next joke, and he went, hold on a second, thank you. Like that, it was a lovely moment, he just stopped the show and went, I think you'll find you've all got no manners, and this is my applause. And it was just such a gracious way of telling them all they were being ungracious. It was beautiful. But so, although Stuart may like the show, because it's probably done him a lot of good, the first time he was on it, I watched him have to reprimand basically all the other comedians for their behaviour. You know, there are five regulars on a show. Buzzcocks has got three regulars, if that, when it was in its normal setting. You did Buzzcocks. I've done the well, Buzzcocks, but there's it? one host, two team captains. So the guests actually outweigh the regulars. Then you've got five regulars, that's five personalities who are completely at home with an audience who've come to see them and two guests, you're an incredible minority and it's a fight to speak. And also when you go to speak and you go, and then someone else gets in first, everyone saw you go, so clearly you're, the etiquette is you're next. You know, it's like in the bar, he was before me, that kind of thing, but it doesn't exist. The next person comes in. So if I did that again, which probably is unlikely because I didn't do that well, but if I did that again, I'd have to have no manners to survive. It's horrible, isn't it? What about Call My Bluff? What about there's a Frank Muir actually chuckling at someone else's comment? There's very little laughter. But anyway, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a producer and you live in Manchester, I hate you for two reasons. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, no, it is pretty brutal. But another TV thing you did that I didn't know about that sounds so interesting was this Horizon. Oh, yeah. So tell me about this. I did an experiment um, that hadn't been done for 50 years because it was so damaging, potentially damaging, where I got locked in a nuclear bunker for 48 hours in pitch black and monitored to see my condition. By yourself? Or I, with I, well, I didn't lock myself in. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, locked in by myself. Yeah, sorry. Um, I genuinely misunderstood you. I take things too literally. I said, look, I, can't, I haven't got the ability to go back three seconds in a sentence. I got, I got locked in. You go, by yourself? What? Um, actually, the funny thing is, at the end of 48 hours, they came and got me. It turned out the door hadn't even been locked. No way. No, no. I wonder how many prisoners could have got out if they just, yeah. they tried to, <laughs> Shawshank Redemption, 20 years with a spoon, you could have just pushed the front door open. But anyway, it was um, 48 hours in pitch black. Six of us did it. And it was done in like the 50s by one bloke. And uh, it had not been done since. So I'm only one of seven people who've done it, which is part of the reason I was attracted to it when they asked me to do it. And they had three of us in pitch black and the other three were given white noise and uh, their arms locked. They couldn't move their arms. And I wouldn't have done that one, I don't think. Because I was allowed to pace up and down. They were sitting down. Oh, God, imagine. What about eating and drinking and weighing? They would bring meals to you twice a day or three times a day. And what happened was the door would open. It was so creepy. Someone, a, a runner for the BBC, would just open the door and slip a tray there and then press a button on the floor, a red light bulb would appear with enough light to see the food. I mean, you couldn't see what the food was or what colour it was. Just enough light to know where your mouth was, basically. Then they would, uh, that would be it. And if you didn't turn the light off, um, a voice would appear and go, like a big brother voice, and go, turn the light off. And turn the light off. Oh, my goodness. And sometimes I'd leave the light on because I was so desperate to hear someone's voice. That was my only form of interaction, which wasn't interaction because they wouldn't talk back to me. So uh, what was it like? It was horrible. I wouldn't do it again unless it was for charity or, or my huge financial benefit. It, it was horrible. I hallucinated vividly. Um, I cried. Um, what did you hallucinate? A pile of oyster shells. A four-foot pile of oyster shells. And I only saw the footage of me hallucinating for the first time anyway on live television on Richard and Judy. So imagine how trippy it is sitting in front of Richard and Judy watching a video footage of yourself hallucinating that's on live TV broadcasting your reaction to that. That's a weird... So what did you look like when you were... I looked like a bloke tripping. I looked like a... Were you talking about... What I was describing, because I knew I was under 24-hour surveillance and psychologists and what somebody else, producers, um, I, I was going, right, I'm hallucinating, I can see oyster shells. I knew they weren't there. There's no way. I'm going to stitch up where they're trying to get their own back on me and sneaking in when I was asleep and putting loads of oyster shells there. But it was hundreds of oyster shells, thousands even, um, vivid, absolutely vivid. So I'm, I'm hallucinating, I'm seeing Oyster Shoals, and I knew it would be good television. There's no way I could ignore that moment to keep it to myself. What was it like? You know, I hallucinated. When you tell us, you know what I mean? Imagine. So I put my hand through the shells to prove to myself they weren't there. Even I knew I wasn't. I think I was enjoying the dream. You know those dreams when you realise you're dreaming? You think, this is great. Right, where am I going to go? I'm going to control it like a computer game. You start driving where you're going to go. Um, I dreamt the other day I left the iron on. I woke up with the iron on in my dream, and I went back to sleep and turned it off. I honestly did. I woke up and I went, oh, iron's on in that dream. I wasn't so lucky. He woke up, went back to see the next day and burnt his house down. God, that's a bit cool, is it? What's my point? You were saying it was quite nice. I made the most of it. Yeah, well, I made because I knew I was hallucinating. And I think when you hallucinate, you know, not to promote um, hallucinogenic drugs, but when you do hallucinate, you can forget you're hallucinating because it's so real. But this wasn't, this was a very sober feeling. My brain was working 95% other than the 5% that was seeing things. I think you need to imagine things. So my brain took a tiny bit of light off the infrared camera, apparently, and used that to spark things off in my brain because complete pitch black after a day and a half there was no nothing for my brain to play with makes you wonder what blind people dream I mean seriously never thought about that before I saw a comedian the other day he said he grew up in some like 
somewhere really dull, very grey city, and he said, my parents had to give me acid so I could see what colours look like. <laughs> Isn't that great? But that got me thinking, it's like, would you see colours if you haven't seen a colour? Is your brain only able to use what it's ever seen? I've never really thought about it, but quite a thought-provoking joke, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, do you think you learnt anything from the experience? Um, I learnt that all sensations are valuable, other than pain. Washing my hands was amazing. When I had the, we, oh, the loo breaks, they would take you blacked-out ski goggles, RAF sort of headphone things on you, and they'd walk you to the loo. You go to the loo, and you're in there with the light on, obviously for your own dignity. But, you know, you wash your hands. I would make the most of washing my hands because this feeling of water trickling, seeing my hands, seeing the water hit me and the feeling, so much going on. In the pitch black, I was banging a lot because by banging, you get the sense of touch and the sound at the same time and the rhythm. So there's something sort of cerebral going, or at least a mental exercise. So that was great. But when I came out, the most incredible thing and everyone's favourite moment, everyone I ever spoke to about this, their favourite moment of the documentary was me walking out of the bunker, which was originally like some horrible war planning, Winston Churchill, World War, where he planned some attack. It was a really sinister looking place. But when I came out again, and the producer tricked me beautifully, he said, I'll just pop down there with you. And I thought it was a bit offish. And I walked down there and I came out, there was cameras and he tricked me into catching a shot of me looking rather than a contrived I'm walking out. It was brilliant. So I actually got the sunlight completely, not even knowing I was about to leave a building. And um, what I saw was the flowers and the trees and the sky and I heard the birds and it was just the most incredible. And I felt like I was in Switzerland from the greyest, most ugly place. I felt suddenly I was on a Caran pencil box and that was the five senses being completely deprived and then suddenly having a party for, well, forever, I suppose, but the novelty wears off, doesn't it? That's the trouble with life. You get you take things for granted, don't you? So TV, we talked about um, that and about the, the week and the kids stuff that you did. Am I right in thinking you got offered to do E4's Kings of Comedy? Yes. Who told you this that? Is the... How on earth did you find that out? <laughs> I'm a very I've never announced research. that. They even upped the fee and I turned it down. Oh, really? Yeah. Why did you turn it down? Um, because I wasn't prepared to be seen. First of all, I think they chose me because I was a bit of an unpredictable person. And I think they wanted me to, you know, to have a tantrum or they wanted me to, not a tantrum, but they wanted to push me. And I mean, I've done reality TV. I did Edinburgh Bust, a documentary in 98. But that was being followed around the Edinburgh Festival doing something I loved. But being locked in a house with people I don't necessarily get on with could be horrible. We had Andrew Maxwell on the podcast. And he was saying, yeah, who won it? But he was saying how they definitely put you in situations, in stressful situations, you you know, very intentionally to try and... Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? (laughs) And he won it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he don't think he even got the prize you were supposed to get, which was a half-hour Channel 4 pilot. Oh, was that supposed to be the prize? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I would sue. Maybe he should. Um, You mentioned Edinburgh bus. So this was a thing you got followed round by a camera crew and directors on Edinburgh. Was that a bit... No, but it was great fun because it's what I loved doing. But I know that, for example, I got a very good review one day and they woke me up, rang me up in the morning and said, oh, you've got a five-star review in the such-and-such paper. Let's go down to the Pleasance Press Room on the entrance to the theatre where thousands and thousands of people an hour walk past. And he said, let's go and have a look at the review. And I got there and it wasn't on the board. And I was pissed off and turned out that, well, it turned out, I worked out that they knew it wasn't on the board. They were basically stirring up an argument. So doing exactly that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very naive of me. I just went, but, you know, my instant reaction was, I'm losing ticket sales because, you know, and it's happened to me since then. It's it's awful, really, isn't it? But if a paper comes out and they don't put it on the board, they're losing, they take 40% of the door. Surely it's in their interest to put the review up. And uh, it was annoying. But to be 
provoked like that is you know it's Jerry Springer-esque, isn't it? Yeah, but I suppose that's all part of Good what television. they're doing for yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I think of you as an inherent part yeah. of Edinburgh. When the first festival I ever went to, you were one of the first stand-ups that I saw there. But you haven't been for a couple of years. No, I seem to have lost some of my my drive to go. I've I've been you know. I'm getting married. I don't want to be away from my wife so much. I think that um, Radio 4 also stopped me going because trying to write a two and a half hours of comedy in a year and doing an Edinburgh show would be horrible. So, you know, now I haven't really got an excuse not to go because I'm not doing Radio 4 anymore. So <clears> do you think you'll go next year? Possibly. I'd want an urge to go rather than pressure myself just to go. I don't like that kind of writing to a deadline with no inspiration. I'd like something that would fuel me. What year did you first go to Edinburgh? Oh, God, 94. When did you first start doing stand-up? 93. Oh, really? That's soon before? December 93. How did you first get into it? I went to a comedy club in St Margaret's near Richmond called The Bearcat, and I couldn't believe that anybody could get up there. I thought you had to have an equity card. I didn't realise you could just get up there. And um, as soon as I found that out, I started writing jokes, and then I went every trying to watch the new acts. I, I, what was fascinating was the new acts had a, a lack of presence or a lack of just body language that you trusted. And even the, the established acts would walk on stage in even a tough gig... And you knew you were in good, safe hands the second. Just like a doctor should sit down and you go, OK, you're going to cure me. It's just that you know that thing a salesman opens a suitcase with 20 years of opening suitcases in their body language. And I realise you can't fake that, but there were certain things that the new acts did wrong, like holding the mic too far away or too close, standing too far in the corner of the stage. And I tried to learn from their mistakes. Before you ever... <clears throat> before I went up. on. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but you, obviously you only learn so much. Right? I'm not saying I got it right, but I certainly didn't do the rookie errors in my first couple of gigs. Can you remember your very first gig? I've got it on audio cassette. Have you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. what's it like? Um, well, it went badly for the first few minutes and then I got heckled and I really went for it and the crowd really took me under their wing for that from that moment and then it went really well and actually it actually ended extremely well but the first few minutes was, you know, I got silence to my first joke to 200 people absolute silence and did you think <clears throat> what am I doing I did I even just before I went on I thought what am I doing but I had seven friends in and my sister did they not even laugh <laughs> well, I think they're no it, it, it's a complete myth that your friends are going to be supportive and laugh if it starts going wrong they'll seize up more than the audience the audience might go well, this guy's not very good I wonder if he's going to get better and your friends are going to be going oh my god do you know what I mean so that no. and, and also as an audience they're not sitting there primed to go ha 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 imagine the sound of no one laughing and seven people going <laughs> wouldn't that be the most uncomfortable sound in the world so first couple of gigs went very well That's first so well actually first five went well and then the sixth one i got booed off oh and um got the most oh just horrible horrible, horrible. i've got that on audio as well have you yeah How yeah you call this on tape? because i'm slightly alien attentive <laughs> no i realized that there was a significant part of my life and I just decided to record it. Actually, when I think about it, it wasn't more the significance. It was because I knew I could learn from listening back to it, um, counting the booze. But then from then, obviously it went well enough that you decided to go to Edinburgh. Yeah, this was the pattern actually. 94 I did a new act competition called So You Think You're Funny. 95 I did a package show with three other comedians. And then 96 did my first one-man show. And then each time after that I did one-man shows. And that's the growing thing. So you're going from five minutes to 20 minutes to an hour. And it's a you know, massive difference from five minutes from now on stage. It's a phenomenal difference. But that came over two and a half years. And that's the pattern, really. That's the standard way of doing it. What were you doing before you were a stand-up? I was a cocktail bartender. That yeah. doesn't surprise me at all, because I kind of think of you... Because there's... I mean, other things about you people might not know, but that you're amazingly quick at doing a Rubik's Cube. Uh, there's one I found on your website. I love this. There's a virtual Rubik's Cube yeah, that yeah. you can do. But also that you do magic tricks. I invent magic tricks. Yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. And what was what was the Paul Daniels thing with your magic trick? He recommended... He gave me a quote on it. 
he someone he knew bought the trick that I released and showed it to him and then he invited me around his house and he was the nicest bloke was he? Yeah. was Debbie McGee there? she was there she, uh, can I just say I've never found his persona completely likeable he was so charming and also his social skills were unbelievable really? yeah unbelievable I was nervous and he sensed it and he did all sorts of little things to make me feel comfortable and then when he realised I was comfortable, he then told me that he noticed I was nervous. He went, OK, we can start talking about the trick now. Um, I don't know if you noticed you were trembling. Did you notice you were trembling? And I went, no. And he went, he took his glass off and looked closely at me and he went, fascinating. Now, you could think, well, that's really bad social skills to draw attention to the fact that I was trembling. But he, he somehow made it, he made me feel like my nerves were something that made me special rather than just something to be embarrassed about. And it's very hard to describe because you could, hearing that, what I just said there, sounds like it would be a horrible thing to say. But basically, he kept talking about all sorts of things, generic subjects, until he could see I was relaxed. And then because somebody I've... I've gigged with some of my comic heroes. I've even supported some of my comic heroes, you know, in one in theatre shows. But to actually be in... I didn't realise how big in my mind Paul Daniels was. I suppose someone had 14 million viewers throughout my whole childhood doing something that I used to do as a hobby as a kid. That's a very, very significant part of your life. And I didn't realise, you know, I thought I'd be meeting this little cocky little old man. I was meeting a massive, massive celebrity in his own home who reached the pinnacle of magic. And I was obviously, you know, in awe. And he bothered to take the time to relax me. But when he was really, he took his glass and went, fascinating. And I was flattered. I was flattered that I was a fascinating person in his eyes to shake. He turned my nerves, my stupid, awkward, geeky nervousness into a wonderful thing. That is amazing. And then he was just very, very helpful and very, very charming and witty. And if I made a joke, he'd laugh and look at Debbie and as if to say, oh, that was funny, wasn't it? We've got a comedian in the house being funny. Rather than being competitive or, you know, egotistical about it. No, I would be singing his praises for forever. You mentioned comedy heroes. Who are your comedy heroes? Emo Phillips. Are you, are you familiar? With, you know the name, but you familiar yeah. with his work though? The guy with the funny voice. Yeah, who does, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's um he blew my mind. I saw him on television in about nineteen eighty nine, and then he did an hour special on Channel Four called Comedian and Mammal, which is on YouTube, and the, just the quality of the the depth of each joke. It wasn't depth as in social commentary or politics. It was just the amount of wit that was subtly planted, extra detail for you to pick up on. And it was just so intelligent and it was so well-crafted. And it was this persona, this completely out-there man who's actually got issues that shouldn't be funny, really. But he blew me away. And when I met him, the disappointment was I quoted the joke to him that made me want to become a comedian. And he couldn't remember the punchline. Oh, really? Yeah. And I just thought, it's the best joke you've ever written and you don't remember the punchline. What was the joke? It was a story about he was in school and he had eventually had to see the headmaster and the headmaster sent him to the school psychologist. So it's all the stages of him being rejected throughout school. And, and the school psychologist sat me down and he, and he showed me this inkblot. And he said, what does this inkblot look like to you? I said, well, it's kind of embarrassing. He said, well, come on, everyone sees something different. What does it look like to you? I said, well, to me, it looks like standard pattern number three in the Rorschach series, test for obsessive compulsiveness. And then, and he gets all depressed. I said, okay, it's a butterfly then, right? But the bit for me was the standard pattern number three. And you realise in retrospect that he said it's kind of embarrassing, which you assume sexual, but he's actually, you, in retrospect, you realise that he's embarrassed because he doesn't want to admit he's been to that many psychologists. And I think what's beautiful is the embarrassing bit is a detail. You don't have to put that in for it to work as a joke, but what a lovely nugget to look back on when you're laughing at the joke. And I thought, it's great, there's detail to look back on while you're laughing. And uh, yes, yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant joke. Was he a nice man, though? Yeah, yeah, a lovely man. 
but a bit like his persona, which is a bit strange because you wonder, you spend the whole time watching him wondering if he's like that, and then you realise that he's a bit like it, and you kind of hoped he was all like it, but still a bit freaked out that he's even at all like that. What about um, current comics? Are there any that you particularly... I mentioned Milton Jones earlier. I think he's incredible. Uh, I watched him at the Comedy Store recently, and he just... Loads of new material, brilliant material. He got heckled by a vet and um, destroyed her. And at the end of it, he said, now I'm putting you down. Just a brilliant... You know, you can't sum up how good a comic is by one ad lib. But I just remember watching him and thinking, he doesn't swear, he's not offensive, he doesn't pick on people, and he's just hilarious. He just kind of disproves the theory that comedy has to have some kind of edge to it because he's just funny. So, Adam Bloom, you are, you're having a baby in January. Before then, you've got some gigs. A bunch coming up in December. Um, Jonglers, what was it you were going to tell me about Jonglers? Well, the news is that they closed down five of their clubs on Wednesday because the company that owned them went into liquidation and I still haven't had it confirmed from them. How significant would that be on the comedy circuit? It means a lot of crap comedians will struggle to make a living, <laughs> I presume, because well, if they've got 14 clubs, they're going to book their favourite people and then fill it with the, their least favourite people because they have to fill 14 times four people a night over Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I think there are some weak comedians now who are pretty terrified, wondering if they're going to be on there. Because they're comedians who only play jonglers. I mean, you know, I play jonglers and I play other clubs, and I think it's bad to do... Other clubs only, or only jonglers. You know, there are club comedians who choose not to play jonglers, but I think it's quite good to hone in material in front of a very mainstream audience because you're making everyone laugh. A joke should work for everybody. It's wonderful when a joke works for everybody. Three generations, Simpsons, Only Fools and Horses. Isn't that the ultimate comedy where everyone gets it? But at the same time, there are comedians who almost only play jonglers, partly because they pay more than most clubs and get a nice hotel and a meal, and this is easy life. And I think some of those comedians will be struggling because they'll be panicking, going, bringing up the clubs who they've chose not to bring. Uh, you know you haven't heard from me. You know I've been ignoring your calls for six years. Well, um, I'm now free. Yeah, we know you're free, mate. We've seen the news. So I think that's going to be interesting. But five clubs, that's a lot of big clubs. You know, we're talking about three, four hundred-seater venues. And I, by the time this gets aired, it will be 100% confirmed. But they haven't rung me to tell me my gigs are cancelled. Right. You're also doing Just the Tonic. Yes. Wonderful. Leicester Square. Than Leicester, the Leicester Square, Square. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of this is up on your website, which is adam-bloom.com. Yes, and do the Rubik Cube and win a free CD. Adam, thank you so much for coming. Thanks on. for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.